Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub and welcome back to another episode of Titan Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. Actually, that's not true. I'm kind of bummed out. And because our society is not a good one, and I do not have health care, you guys are as close to a therapist as I can afford. So, let me talk this through with you. I recently sent a friend a project that I'd worked on, and I gotta say their response was not really what I was hoping for. Now, I can take constructive criticism as well as the next guy, which is to say, not at all. But I must say, I was unprepared for the response that I got, which was, a week later, having the first and thus far only reaction be, Hey, maybe we could get you a book about how to write. I'll go to the bookstore with you. Yeah. Now, I'm sure this was well-intentioned, but I must say my response was to reply, Sounds great. Maybe they have some books about diplomacy there as well. Actually, I just said the sounds great part and then thought the rest of it. Because, like I said, the guy's a friend and I'm sure he meant well. And also, I like to go to bookstores. But it kind of bummed me out. So I'd like to offer you listeners some suggestions about better ways to give me critical feedback. Don't. I am a beautiful, delicate flower who will wilt if not placed in the direct sunlight of abject praise. But... If you absolutely have to deliver constructive criticism to somebody else, there are some diplomatic ways to go about that. One popular technique is known as the shit sandwich, in which you couch the criticism between two metaphoric slices of praise, and it makes the whole thing go down a little bit easier. I think the underlying philosophy of this technique is sound, but I have some trouble with the metaphor in that I think it only really works if the person involved like, really, really likes bread. A lot. I prefer to think of it as the puppy dogs eating ice cream cones approach, in which you give them something really good up front, like an image of a puppy dog standing on its hind legs, holding a ice cream cone in its front paws, and just licking it. Ha! <laughs> that makes me happy just thinking about it. That's the initial praise. But... That much dairy is going to give the puppy dog diarrhea, and you're going to have to clean that up. And the cleaning up puppy diarrhea is the criticism. But while you're doing it, you get to think about what led to it, which was a puppy dog standing on its hind legs, eating an ice cream cone, holding it in its front paws, and just licking it. Which is kind of worth it. And then when you're done, you have a clean home and the memory of a puppy dog standing on its hind legs, eating an ice cream cone. And that's the second piece of praise in which you couch your constructive criticism. Anyway, in summation, puppy dogs eating ice cream cones while standing on their hind legs is adorable. And I really like thinking about that image. And also, only say nice things about me. And also, also, bread's good, but come on, it's not that good. Anyway, thanks for letting me talk through some shit. Now, let's talk about a comic book, shall we? Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Dan Grote. The Hulk is really mad because they're out of hydroxes. Kyle prefers gold Oreos because he's a rich snob, sis. 
All this talk of sandwich cookies is getting real toxic. So ends all these slant rhymes. Now you've got a synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Dan. Defenders, number 67. January, 1979. Val and Valhalla, part two. We the Unliving. Written by David Anthony Kraft. Sort of a little, but mostly Ed Hannigan. Drotted by Ed Hannigan. Inked by Bruce Patterson. Lettered by Elaine Heinel. Colored by Bob Sharon. And edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup. Valkyrie. The Hulk. Nighthawk. Hellcat. Harokin. And Doctor Strange is on the cover, but that's it, so I don't think that counts. Previously in the Defenders. Ever since her introduction as a Defender, an undefined but seemingly significant amount of comic book time ago, Valkyrie has struggled to make peace with the fact that her Scandinavian sword-slinging superhero self is a sorcerously created persona that inhabits her host body, Barbara Norris. Barbara's mind, which was driven magically mad by a combination of cosmic nonsense and Steve Strange's mystical tomfoolery, still resided somewhere within the Aesir Amazon, but had been almost entirely dormant for the better part of her tenure on our titular non-team. A few issues ago, Val started having flashbacks to her previous life in Asgard, the home of the ancient Norse gods. When she was recovering from one such episode, Valkyrie received a summons from her old boss Hela, the god of the dead, informing her that she was to report back to duty post-haste. Val teleported herself and her flying horse Aragorn to Asgard, leaving Kyle and Patsy a note informing them only that she was leaving, never to return. Upon arriving back in her old celestial stomping grounds, Valkyrie decided to visit the Norns, the three fates of Norse lore, to have her fortune told. Fun! The Norns informed our prophecy-pursuing protagonist that a significant percentage of the Earth's population, including the Defenders, would die soon, and that Val herself would soon be banished to Niflheim where she would burn in flames for all time. Bummer! We also learned that Val's name is actually Brunhilda, and that she is the leader of the Valkyrior, whose job it is to usher brave warriors who died in battle to their eternal reward in Valhalla, which is usually depicted as a giant magical mead hall, but in this comic is a vast barren wasteland which makes it seem less of an eternal reward and more like an eternal landscaping project. Valkyrie, which is to say Brunhilda, but I'm probably going to keep calling her Valkyrie because so is everyone else, thanked the Norns for their perturbing prognostication, and proceeded to check in with her old boss Hela in Valhalla so that she could get banished or whatever. Much to Val's surprise, Hela claimed she had no intention of banishing any of her subordinates anywhere. The grim goddess had only called Val back into duty because some upstart god named Olerus was gunning for her job as god of the dead, and she needed someone to lead her army against him. Olerus dressed like a mechanical street shark and was the god of skiing and archery. Apparently, he had recently decided he was no longer content doing his duties as the deity of biathlon events and would be happier being the god of death. Fair enough. The atypically attired ambitious Aesir and his underlings, the sorceress Cassiolina and the minor magician Popo the Cunning, had recruited their own army of the dead and as a result Valhalla was now in the throes of a celestial civil war. At Hela's insistence, Val took her place as the leader of the host of the Valkyrior, and alongside her old buddy Harokin, the leader of Hela's undead army, who was presumably named after the noise it makes when Ryu throws a fireball in Street Fighter 2, she led their forces into combat in this increasingly acrimonious afterlife altercation. The fighting was fierce, and initially the two teams of dead Vikings seemed to be evenly matched, but then Olerus deployed his secret weapon— a sharkfin-shaped magical mobile mountain base that could trigger earthquakes. Oh no! 
As a result of this sinister seismic silliness, both undead armies were buried under a rock slide. Valkyrie took to the air and managed to find an opening in the top of the peculiar Piscine Peak that had appeared on the battlefield. Once inside, she followed the not-at-all-suspicious tunnel that manifested itself in front of her and found herself in a large antechamber where she was surprised to encounter a familiar face. Her own. Lying on the floor of the cavern was the apparently empty Asgardian vessel from which her own persona was extracted before it was smushed into its current home in the body of Barbara Norris. Strangely drawn to herself, Val reached out to touch her face, but as soon as she made contact with her former self, an explosive crackle of sorcerous energy filled the air. When the magical dust settled, our hero lay prone on the floor, while above her, flanked by Olorus, Popo, and Cassiolina, her previously unoccupied Aesir body stood ascendant, and proudly proclaimed that Barbara Norris lived again. Gadzooks! How was Barbara cured of her magically manifested mental malady? Why did Valkyrie's vision of the future show her burning in Niflheim, when Muspelheim is the realm more generally associated with flames? And are the Defenders really doomed to suffer an untimely demise? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... I don't know, it doesn't really come up. I don't know, it doesn't really come up. And... yes. The Hulk is chilling out in a national park in Oregon, thinking about how nice it is that nobody's trying to kill him. Then a bunch of army guys show up and try to kill him. Damn it, army guys! The army's tactics at Hulk murdering are about as effective as they usually are, which is to say, not very. But their assorted missile blasts do manage to knock the Jade Giant into a nearby river. The Hulk emerges from the water in a somewhat less than amiable mood, and resolves to smash the puny humans responsible for his involuntary dampness. He leaps into the air to make good on this resolution. But before he can see his plan to fruition, he suddenly drops dead, his body plummeting into a deep ravine. Well, that was unexpected. The military men aren't sure what has just happened, but having tussled with the Hulk before, they figure he's probably just fine, and if they went and looked for a body, it would likely result in them being smashed. So they decide to call it a day and head home. Meanwhile, back in Valhalla, undead army general slash video game sound effect Harokin is surveying the carnage from the most recent skirmish in Asgard's undead civil war. He's pretty bummed out that his team lost, but he consoles himself with the knowledge that he is a good, good fighter, and that if his team lost, then Olerus must have cheated. He also thinks that his boss Hela is a real jerkhole. He's about to join the rest of his army in some aimless wandering about bemoaning their fate, when he's distracted by the rumbling of another earthquake, similar to the one that decimated his forces one day hence. At first, he isn't sure where the noise is coming from, but eventually, he notices that there is a giant shark-fin-shaped mountain zooming around the desolate landscape like an enormous craggy race car. Harokin might not be the brightest fireball sound effect, but he's pretty sure that that is unusual behavior for a rock formation. Man, I can see why Hella made that guy a general. He calls over his buddy Hagar, and they head off to investigate. Turns out, Harokin's instincts are on the money. The suspiciously mobile mountain is actually Olorus's Shark Fin Mountain playset. I mean, hidden headquarters. But it would make a pretty sweet playset. From within its depths, Popo and Olorus enter the cell where they are keeping Valkyrie captive so that they can gloat at her evilly. Val wakes up and starts batting the bad guys around. Hooray! Then Olorus uses his costume's 
prehensile codpiece slash tail to toss Valkyrie aside long enough for he and Popo to flee her cell. Popo enchants the door to keep her from escaping. Before they head back to the mountain's living room or whatever, Olerus yells to Val, Look, I get that we're jerks and all, but your boss hell is a dick too, so why not join our team? If you do, I promise I won't banish you to the part of Niflheim that's on fire for some reason. Valkyrie is unconvinced. Meanwhile, back in Midgard, asterisk Earth, Kyle and Patsy are going for a joyride in the Hellcat mobile that Kyle seems to think is his just because he bought it with his money and imported it from England. Silly Kyle. That's Patsy's car. Because she likes it. Patsy's been pretty bummed out ever since Val went missing. She keeps having visions about her big blonde buddy being in danger. Kyle thought going for a drive might get Hellcat's mind off things. Turns out, High-speed automotive shenanigans might not be the best recreational activity for someone who is having trouble concentrating. For no apparent reason, Patsy veers into oncoming traffic and collides headfirst with a truck. The Hellcat Mobile and the two heroes there and tumble off a cliff. Yikes! Our heroes emerge from the wreckage and are initially relieved to discover that they seem perfectly fine. Then they notice that the rescue workers at the crash site seem to be ignoring them. Then they notice their corpses being loaded into an ambulance. That's probably not a good sign. If at this point you have concluded that Patsy and Kyle died in that car crash and are ghosts, then 1. You are 100% correct, and B. You caught on a lot faster than Kyle did, because he stands around yelling obliviously at EMTs long after Patsy has figured out what happened. After a few minutes, a bright light appears before the deceased do-gooders, and from that light emerges Valkyrie, driving a gleaming golden chariot drawn by two white horses. Wait a minute. I thought Valkyrie was still trapped in a cell in that Sharkfin Mountain playset. What gives? Well, what gives is that this Valkyrie is actually Barbara Norris wearing Val's old body around like a fancy suit. Apparently, her vocabulary is no longer limited to a long string of capitalized vowels, and she is using her newfound eloquence to fool the defenders in adjoining Olerus's army of the dead. Pretty sneaky, Babs. Nighthawk has some misgivings about being ushered into Valhalla, but he eventually relents, and he and Hellcat hop in the magic chariot and are whisked away. Back inside the Sharkfin Mountain playset, Olerus uses his fancy space laser telescope to watch events unfold on Midgard, asterisk Earth. Once he is satisfied that Barbara has successfully bamboozled Kyle and Patsy, he turns his attention to helping Cassiolina pick out some other new recruits. They spot a handsome mustachioed blonde man emerging from a dance studio and decide that he'd make a fine addition to their dead guy brigade. They zap him with their death beam and whisk his soul away to their side of the afterlife to fight in their army. Diabolical. Also, kind of an inefficient way to assemble an army of thousands. But I guess I appreciate the personal touch they're employing when picking out the roster of their corpse corps. Hmm, that phrase works better written than it does spoken. Within her cell, Val has decided that it's time to escape. She starts knocking on the door of her cell. Naturally, her guards decide that the appropriate way to respond to someone making noise is to try to stab her with a spear through the bars of the door. Jeez, guys. Whatever happened to mean-spirited taunting or yelling, Silence, impudent whelp! They are just not making buffoonish fantasy prison guards the way they used to. 
Fortunately, Val anticipated her jailer's disproportionate response to knocking. She grabs the spear from the unnecessarily aggressive guard and yanks it into her cell, then uses the purloined weapon to smash through the back of the cell, creating a hole in the side of the mountain. Hooray! Unfortunately, Val's elation at her newfound freedom proves to be short-lived, for once she has emerged from her prison and begins climbing down the sheer rock walls, she finds that her escape route is guarded by, you guessed it, bright red talking pterodactyls. Hooray! Turns out Cassiolina didn't have a ton of confidence in Popo's skills as a warden, and decided to whip up these chatty dinosaurs as a precautionary measure in case Val somehow got free. I gotta say, between creating magical dinos and picking an army of dead based solely on horny whimsy, Cassiolina is turning out to be a pretty fun hench person. Val stabs one of the pterodactyls with her spear, but the other one scoops her up and announces his intention to return her to Olorus. Things seem pretty grim, but then a sword flies out of nowhere and stabs the flying dinosaur through the head. Hooray! Also, gross! The off-panel sword flinger turns out to be Horokin, who had found Aragorn wandering around after Val disappeared and had him help track her down. Together they head back to Hela's side of Valhalla to marshal her forces against Olorus and his army. As Val and Horokin depart the Sharkfin Mountain playset, another group of defenders is arriving. Barbara's chariot arrives in a flash of light at the front of a horde of newly dead Midgardians, asterisk Earthlings. Patsy and Kyle hop out and are surprised to see that amongst the throng of new arrivals is the Hulk. They shout out to greet him, but the bounding behemoth seems not to hear them. At the front of the growing crowd, Olorus stands resplendent in his street shark exoskeleton. He's like, Hey everybody, sucks that you're all dead now. I think Hela, the god of the dead, must have done that. Bummer. You guys want to go kick her ass? To be continued. Hey, maybe in the next issue, we'll finally get to meet Hrokin's long-lost brother. Get over here! I sure hope so. And my good-for-many-things brother, Cory, accidentally drank from the wrong enchanted mead flagon. Turned out it belonged to Odin the Allfather. And, well, what with one thing or another, Cory found himself banished to Niflheim. Now, fortunately, as we've learned from these comic books, Niflheim can mean a lot of things, and he seems to have ended up in a pretty nice part of it. So, speaking to me through a magical portal, how's it going, Corey? Hey, it's going pretty great. This has got to be the nicest neck of Niflheim around. Nice. Probably like uh, Muspelheim adjacent, so you got like a little bit of warmth, some nice breezes, stuff like that. Yep. Yep, exactly. Sunny, beautiful, warm, uh, nice breeze. Got some palm trees. Nice. Now that's a Niflheim I think we can all get behind. Yep. So uh, in that corner at Niflheim, do they have copies of the Defenders number 67? Oh, you bet they do. Cool. Well, you want to talk about it? Yeah, I think we should. All right. Corey, what'd you think of this issue? Well, I was no longer wrapped in the comfortable blanket of uh, ignorance. So <laughs> I was thinking it through a little bit more than I did the last issue that we read, but not so much that I actually went online and started researching Norse mythology to try and, you know, wring a little more coherence of, out of what was going on. 
It's probably a good call. Yeah. That said, it was, for the most part, enjoyable. I was happy to see Hellcat, though briefly. It did seem like not a whole heck of a lot happened for the 32 pages that we went through together. Yeah, I think it was a slight advancing of the plot from the last issue and mostly just trying to untangle some elements of it, which I think it did a pretty good job of doing. It was definitely all concerned with a single storyline, which is something we haven't seen a lot lately, which I kind of appreciated. And I think there's actually a pretty good reason for that. Last issue, it turns out, was David Kraft's last issue of The Defenders. So with this issue, Ed Hannigan took over the writing and was trying to piece together, I think, what he thought David Kraft was trying to do with the script, which I can understand must have been kind of difficult. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I noticed in the little credit banner thing on the first page, it says that the plot is by Kraft and Hannigan, but the script and the pencils are, are just Hannigan. Yeah. So at this point, I had not realized this was coming up as soon as it was. David Anthony Kraft had quit the title. Um, He had been doing a bunch of other work for Marvel, but one of those other jobs that he had was writing the adaptation of the Beatles' life story that was in this big magazine-sized thing. And so he wrote that, and when he was working on that, negotiated a different rate for himself so he would get some royalties on that title. And that was a kind of weird gray area for Marvel where they normally don't do that for writers, but Mm. where it was not licensed characters, it was the Beatles, which Marvel doesn't own the rights to. They had a little bit of wiggle room. And so the way they got around it was they paid him through a company that he set up, which was called Mad Genius Incorporated, I think, which was Steve Gerber's old company, because I believe Steve Gerber had left at this point. And because he was being he and I think George Perez was the other person working on it because they were being paid as a company and not as individual artists uh, that didn't reflect a new pay rate for other artists and creators and wouldn't necessarily. I think they had a system in place where artists and freelancers would negotiate against each other. So they were held separate from that on this title because it was the Beatles. But basically, I think he kind of got a taste of getting paid a decent rate for his work and was like, oh, no, I want to do that instead. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So he left the title at this point. I think he started his own publishing house briefly in Georgia, but it didn't really work out. And so to try to figure out what they were going to do for the rest of the plot, Ed Hannigan did like a really brief consult with David Kraft and then mostly called the guy who was going to take over the art as of the next issue, Herb Trimpe, who I think we've seen before. Uh, He did a lot of Hulk art. He had been an artist since the 40s. And they just kind of tried to piece together what they thought was going on. And I think they did a pretty decent job of it. In fact, in a lot of ways, it seems like there is more attention paid to previous Defenders continuity in this issue than there had been when it was David Kraft referencing his own stuff. You get a callback to Nighthawk being upset about the $25,000 he paid for his car. Or being oddly unupset by it. Yeah, being upset that he wasn't upset by it. (laughs) Feeling weird, guys. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. But also, it is kind of interesting that because he's doing both the scripting and the artwork, there are some other, like, continuity that I don't think you necessarily saw before, like the fact that 
the Hellcat Mobile, which R.I.P. Hellcat Mobile. I'm going to miss that Mm -hmm. car, even if Nighthawk isn't upset about it. We see that it is drawn with the driver side on the British side because he imported the car from England and like just little things like that are referenced into it. And I think it might just be a matter of like, I don't know, when you borrow somebody else's stuff, you're generally a little bit more careful with it than you are if it's your own. So I think maybe other people's continuity has a little bit more weight than your own, maybe. But Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, this story made more sense to me than the last one. And maybe partly it was because he's still finding his feet and maybe taking things slower in terms of developing the plot. But uh, I I dug it overall. Yeah, it was definitely more to the point, I suppose, than the last issue. Really, nothing changed unless I'm missing something from the last issue other than um, Odorous. Nope, that's not his name. Olorous. Olorous. (laughs) Olorous the Odorous Mm -hmm. is uh, building his, um, you know, shoring up his, his army to fight against Hela. Yeah, he's got some kind of a magic space laser that he's using to kill people on Earth and beam them directly to his side of Valhalla to, uh, I guess he's kind of gerrymandering the dead, it seems like, and making sure they end up in his corner of what I guess is called Valhalla. There is also, honestly, some attempts to clarify some of the Norse shit that I had issues with in the last one, where it talks about, like, yeah, Valhalla used to be this paradise mead hall where it was just the good people who died in battle. But now it seems like a bunch of stinky assholes are all getting in. And you get like some of the guards that are working for Olorus being former veneer instead of Aesir. And that is like an actual like Norse mythology thing. There was the Aesir Vanir Wars, and there was always a little bit of tension between those two sects of Norse gods and potentially Norsemen, I suppose, too. And so I, I appreciated stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, they did sort of try and explain uh, why Valhalla had gone down the tubes. Odin got uh, busy, delegated to Hela, and she did a bad job keeping the riffraff out. Pretty much. We also see on the cover, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but they separated Valhalla into two words. And I was like, oh, did they just think that's where Val lives? Oh, Yeah. I thought that was kind of cute. What was maybe a little bit less cute is what do you think Steve was doing on the cover? He's just like running and being like, guys, wait for me. (laughs) Because he is nowhere to be found. Yeah, that was kind of curious to me. I think maybe he ended up like maybe halfway through the wave of the dead because every time he goes ghost Steve, it seems like somebody assumes that he's dead. So maybe he can just go like partway to Valhalla and like... Somewhere along the Rainbow Bridge that he lost the rest of the crowd. Yeah, it could be. I mean, he definitely looks like he's doing his mystical best. When he's running, he's doing the little I love you sign that usually shoots, <laughs> you know, lasers out of his hand and stuff. But uh, Yeah, he's yeah. doing the Spider-Man thwip thing. <laughs> yep, he is. And he does look like he's like, hey guys, wait for Steve. And apparently they didn't wait for Steve because he does not make it to Valhalla in the issue. The cover is by Herb Trimpe, uh, and we see his depiction of the Hulk, which is one that I'm really familiar with. He drew the Hulk a lot in the 70s, and so uh, I'm looking forward to him taking over the art in the next issue, too. Yeah, the cover was was pretty decent. One of the comments about this issue that I read was some you know random internet person was saying one of the, the few times that the interior art was better than the cover, which huh. I, I don't really know if I agree with that. I don't either. I, 
I think honestly they're both fine. I, as I mentioned last issue and have before, I sometimes get bothered by Hannigan's work, but honestly, I wonder to what extent my kind of general antipathy towards him is from having read this storyline a while ago and not realizing all the machinations behind it and just thinking like, oh, things got a little bit weird when Ed Hannigan took over from David Kraft. I wish Kraft was still writing. But the rushed nature of the transfer of power, I think, totally makes sense that it would be difficult to have a coherent storyline kept with it. And uh, yeah, honestly, in this, I kind of I thought the artwork was pretty good and I kind of dug it. Mm -hmm. Man, felt bad for the Hulk. He's been gone so long and he just winds up getting wet and then dying. Yeah. Bummer. (laughs) Total bummer. Speaking of which, we see that the title of this issue is We the Unliving, which is a reference to uh, an Ayn Rand book, We the Living. Oh, huh. Yeah. That's uh, not Kratz doing, because he's out of the picture. He may have named the title beforehand. Oh, okay. I don't know which of them was the Ayn Rand fan, or if it was a sign of that, or if it was just a, uh, yeah, that that we want to have a story about unliving people. That's a pun, kinda. Yeah. But there is kind of a through line with that in that when you open it up on the first page, the Hulk looks way more like old Kirby slash Frankenstein's creature looking Hulk than we're used to seeing him. And having that tie in with the title and the fact that he ends up unliving by the end of the issue, I think was kind of a nice touch. Yeah, I liked Hulk's brief but bright appearance here. Yeah, I think it was kind of the highlight of the book for me. If nothing else, it is the first coherent explanation we have gotten, cynical though it is, of why the army is always chasing Hulk. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. It's a nice touch. Yeah, one of the soldiers is like, why do we keep doing this? It seems like a huge waste of time. And uh, the response is simple, Sergeant. They have to. It's in the budget. Yeah. We've got this much money that we have to spend trying to kill the Hulk. If we don't spend it, we'll get less money next year for trying to kill the Hulk. Yeah, and it wouldn't surprise me if if that had totally been the case. I've seen that to a degree in the corporate world where it's like, okay, well, we've got budget to hire somebody and it's not going to be there next year. Yeah. You know, but there's not enough work for a new person to do. But we're just going to hire them and pay them a lot of money to sit around. Yeah, I think it is probably something like that. And you see, it is kind of a running theme throughout the comic book. Just kind of the futility and bureaucracy of war machines, be they Asgardian or Midgard, asterisk Earth in origin. Because we see that Haruken is also ruminating about man, this is my duty. I signed up for this. It's my job, but I don't trust my boss or think that she's doing a good job. I'm Mm -hmm. just kind of going through the motions and here we are hacking each other apart because of it. Shitty. Yep, indeed. And we've also got another branch of government here, the National Parks Service, who those guys are probably bummed out that the Pentagon's budget is screwing up their park while uh, the army's chasing after the Hulk through it. Do we see them represented in this? I missed that, actually. No, I'm just thinking thinking it through out loud. <laughs> oh, okay. We are t- told that it's a national park in, in Oregon. Did you have any thoughts on um on which one it might be? I mean, it's got to be Crater Lake. I think that's the only national park that we have in Oregon. 
Unless it's the Bonneville Power Dam and Fish Hatchery, or as I like to call it, the Bonerville Power Dam and Fish Hatchery, because that fish hatchery is rad. Ah, uh, I have heard you say that. <laughs> yeah, no, I was thinking Crater Lake. Yeah, it's, it's pretty much gotta be, but uh, yeah, bummer for the park rangers there. We did see another cameo that I kind of wasn't expecting. Hagar the Horrible shows up. <laughs> That's so funny. In my notes, I appended horrible to his name also. I think it is supposed to be Hagar the Horrible. He's got the shorn off one horn on his Viking helmet, and he's called Hagar. I wish the colorist had been in on the joke and didn't give him a blonde beard, although maybe they were requested to by editorial. But uh, I thought that was a pretty fun touch. Yeah, I got a chuckle out of that as well, because I I think this is contemporaneous to Hagar the Horrible's uh, ascent to notoriety on the sun on the Sunday <laughs> funnies. Absolutely. Which made me wonder, it kind of begs the question, if you could introduce one comic strip character into the Marvel universe, who would you choose? Well, I think maybe it's just because of Steve's love of her and my amusement at that but i'd I'd be curious to see how (laughs) kathy would fare oh geez honestly there's been some writers who have written the wasp not that dissimilar to kathy there's a certain subsect of male comic book writers who seem to have derived everything that they know about women and their personalities from reading kathy comic strips (laughs) i think that would be an interesting fit i think kathy and pym What will they get up to next? Chocolate? (laughs) Damn it. Damn it, Pim. I think that would be an interesting choice. Yeah, I thought about it. And my initial response was like, oh, I would want to see like, uh, like Bloom County was like my favorite. But as I was thinking about it, I was just like, well, I mean, like, you've already got Steve Dallas pretty much as Jack Norris. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And, uh. I forget who it was that was like Bill the Cat, but like there was somebody that, wait, who was it that reminded me of Bill the Cat? Who is like Bill the Cat? Is he a musician? <laughs> was there a band like Billy and the Boingers? I wish. I mean, in, in terms of him <laughs> dying constantly and then coming back, uh, you got Professor X. That guy dies all the time. So there's, you know, certain archetypes uh, that I think he represents. I mean, I think both the Hulk and Bill the Cat are in different ways manifestations of like a raging id. Uh, so I, I feel like you've kind of got those things taken care of already. So I think I would want the uh, characters from Akewood to show up in the Marvel Universe. Uh, Roast Beef, the Depressed Cat, and Ray Smuckles. I think that would be a, a, a nice addition to the Marvel Universe. And oh, maybe man. give roast beef nigh omnipotent powers like a Mr. Mixtapitalic or a Quisp or a Batmite type character where we've seen like the manic side of these characters fucking with superheroes and displaying their like cosmic nonsense powers. But I would kind of like to see the flip side of that and see the depressive side of that and how that would manifest itself as a foil to uh, some of our, our heroes. I think that would be kind of fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Kind of like uh, like Silver Surfer after the after the Coke binge. Exactly. Oh, man, I could totally see Silver Surfer and Roast Beef hanging out. Yep. Good times and bad. And great oldies. 
<laughs> all weekend long. Did you notice that Kyle, I think, is maybe trying to reclaim ownership of the car just before its destruction? It seemed that Hellcat had more or less appropriated the vehicle and claimed it for her own. But in this one, we see that it's got a personalized license plate that says Kyle 3 on it. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Like, did he have two of those same cars before that got wrecked? Or I think maybe just in the state of New York, there were already two Kyles. <laughs> and so he was just like, it's like with uh, like internet names where he's just like, oh, okay, I can't be Kyle. I'll be Kyle 1974, you know? <laughs> Right, yeah. But, you know, three isn't too... Yeah, that's not that bad. He's the third Kyle. That That's pretty good. And it also just shows that he doesn't have the imagination to, like, try spelling Kyle with a three instead of the E, which would be a different way to go. Or maybe it's just a subconscious manifestation that deep down, he knows he's not in the top two Kyles. Oh, uh, yeah. I, th- I think this was pre, pre-elite uh, speak. Hasn't been discovered yet. That's a damn shame. He could have gotten in on the ground floor of that shit. Well, who are we talking about here? This is not a no. He's not a ground floor kind of guy. <laughs> this is an old money privilege kind of guy. Yep, no need to get in on the ground floor when you live in the penthouse. Exactly. What did you think of uh, Cassiolina and Popo and their continuing rivalry in this issue? Uh, I was kind of more the same, although I was pleased to see uh, before I feel like we didn't really get a clear picture of Cassiolina's, you know, efforts or machinations. But uh, we we definitely saw them with the two uh, dragons or pterodactyls or whatever they were at the end here. It's weird because that is the sort of thing that I would generally ascribe to a miscommunication between artist and writer that the dragons are clearly just pterodactyls. But it's the same guy, so... Okay, Uh, you want to call pterodactyls dragons? Go for it, buddy. They can talk, so fuck it. Maybe they're dragons. But I like that she made uh, devil pterodactyls. That was pretty sweet. Mm -hmm. I kind of liked the addition to her personality that she's just like window shopping for pretty corpses along with Oleris and being like, oh, well, we got the defenders now. Ooh, who's that guy? I guess I'll kill him. Let's pick the blonde fellow. (laughs) And Ulrich was totally down for that. He's like, yes, he has strong shoulders. Get him up here. I was reading that and I was like, these guys are the most inefficient military recruiters (laughs) ever. They're like, okay, we're going to get the defenders and this one blonde dude. (laughs) I mean, they... They ended up with a whole army of guys. Did they handpick all of them just based on who they were horny for right then? I don't think so. I think that there was just not enough time in the comic for that to happen. (laughs) So they're like, okay, we're going to pick the first like six and then we'll just take the rest of the Lower East Side or however they did it. I don't know. I guess. I mean, it makes sense in terms of just like budgeting your time on any project. I feel like a certain amount of that ends up happening. You put a ton of care into the first few decisions that you make, and then it's like, oh, fuck, deadline. Mm-hmm. It did seem odd to me that they weren't, like, maybe cherry-picking some more superheroes instead of just guys with nice stashes. It's not like they couldn't have found people who had both. Yeah, and in fact, we're not too far away from the Defender for for a Day storyline. They had a whole mess of, you know, powered people that they could have picked I know, and ones that Hellcat was describing as, uh, what was it? Uh, Rip Snorton Super Hunks. So, 
I mean, there's something for everybody within the superhero community. You would think that they would have maybe focused more of their efforts on that. One would think. But, I don't know, I guess you got a Hulk, then the rest of them are like, eh, whatever, we've got a great quarterback, we can fill out the backfield with scrubs. (laughs) No scrubs. Yeah. Oh, I think that Valhalla should have a much stricter no scrubs policy. Yeah, they missed the they missed the boat on that. I, I think that's something that Haruk and probably has some uh, some issue with. Man, I was just reviewing the the page that does show the army that they got, and it seems like everybody's wearing uh, mauve suits. So maybe that was their criteria. <laughs> it's like just pick everybody in mauve suits. Do you think maybe? Cassiolina just saw the color pants that the Hulk was wearing and then was just like, oh, I'll assume everyone else is on his team. Probably they're just not hulked out right now. Once they do, everything but the pants will shred. So looking for purple suits, these guys get to come to Valhalla. That is a that's a good leap of logic. I like that. Yeah, let's let's say that's how it went down. Okay, so she got the Hulk and then just figured she'd pick out the rest of the people that she felt were wearing his uniform. Yep, except the blonde guy whose clothes we'll talk about later, I'm sure. Oh, we will. And also the other defenders. Yep. Popo doesn't seem like he's that great at his job. He's good at (laughs) self-promotion. He is. He does get shut down, though. Yeah. He does not want to let Oleris forget the work that he has done in the past, but I'm guessing that he probably does hope that Oleris forgets about the shit he's doing in this issue, because he's got some pretty ineffective laser blasts that he uses, and then he gets jumped by Val and forgets to secure the back of her cell. I, I don't know. I gotta cut the guy some slack for that. I, I would think, like, if I locked somebody in a, you know, a dungeon-carved into a rock i'd be like yeah the door is the weakest part of that yeah i guess i don't know how his magic works specifically but he's used to imprisoning gods who i'm guessing a lot of them can probably punch through rocks you'd think no yeah no i i I don't want to be a popo apologist but (laughs) yeah it it did crack me up to how when, yeah, he's kind of self-aggrandizing. Indeed, Master Popo's scheming is complete in all respects. Like, it reminded me of these self-assessments at a job <laughs> I used to have. <laughs> Corey is really good at his job, blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, man, he's totally doing the self-assessment thing. Do you ever have that where you have to write about yourself in the third person? I have not. Uh, thankfully, I've mostly avoided jobs where that was a part of it. But I do like the idea of Popo writing out, Popo's greatest weakness is that Popo works too hard. <laughs> Popo cares too much. <laughs> Popo has no sense of work-life balance. Popo is too efficient, if that's a thing. <laughs> Yeah, it just goes to show you should not be allowed to choose your own nickname. No. Popo the Cunning. Wait, he... Oh, right, okay, I was thinking the first part. I forgot about the... No, Popo, I'm I'm assuming, is his full name. I mean, I guess it could be short for Popomatic Bubble or Poppin' Fresh, the Pillsbury Doughboy. I don't know, what would you think Popo would be short for? Popo... No, that sounds more Greek. I was going to say Popo... Oh, no, he's no Alex Karos. No, he's no George Papadopoulos. Wasn't there a political guy named George Papadopoulos recently? 
Uh, I don't know. I feel like there was. Hmm. I might be thinking of George Stephanopoulos. That that rings a bell. Or I might be thinking of Snuffleupagus. He is not a political creature. <laughs> oh, so naive, Corey. <laughs> oh, come on. Snuffleupagus was always scheming, part of the secret Sesame Street shadow government until he got exposed. Oh, yeah, that's right. Thank goodness for the internet. Yeah, anyway, so there's a weird picture of of, uh, of Valkyrie on page 27. Did you notice that? I did not. Let me take a look. She's smashing through the, the wall, escaping oh. out of the jail. And the bottom half of her, I can't tell if that's supposed to be the front or the back. It's definitely the front. Yeah, she has a lot of torque on that torso, it looks like. That is confusing. That's an injury. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what kind of yoga they're doing in Valhalla, but uh, it looks like it's paying off for her. That is some bizarre flexibility. Ask too much. My back hurts just looking at it. Oof. Well, maybe that's how they chose her to lead the uh, the Valkyrior. Flexibility. Uh-huh. They do some stretches first, and whoever's able to uh, be the most stretchy wins. Known for their uh, their yoga training, the ancient Norse. Well, flexibility is a a hallmark of a good leader, right? Yeah, exactly. How did Barbara Norris get sane all of a sudden? It's it's the same problem that we had in the last issue, where they basically wake her up, and she's like, I am suddenly evil and coherent for no reason. It seems like the sort of thing that you could just give her a sentence or something. Like, have her start with, like, a long string of triple A's, and then... Give her some of, like, the water of Mimir or something. Like, there's got to be some Norse nonsense you could splash her with that would just be like, oh, it's a panacea. Now she's feeling better, but she's still pissed off about what happened. You know? Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yeah, a little a little bit would have gone a long way there. I will say that evil Barbara Norris did a great job at her uh, assigned tasks. No, she totally did. Really Pulled the wool over Patsy and Nighthawk's eyes. Oddly, Nighthawk seemed to see through her at first, but then just let himself get talked into it. That was one of the things I was most impressed about by her, where she was like, hey, look, normally a schmuck <laughs> like you wouldn't get into Valhalla, <laughs> but I bent the rules, okay? And he's like, oh, yeah. That's, I, don't I, I pulled some strings. You want to be a ghost? You go be a ghost, Kyle. Fine with me. No skin off Valkyrie's nose. He's like, yeah, I don't want to be left behind with the rest of humanity. I, w- I want to go to Valhalla. Yeah, seems like a pretty great place. I heard it's this awesome meat hall where you just beat each other up. Oh, it's a barren mountainous wasteland. Valkyrie. Yeah, it's a heck of a switcheroo. Well, was there anything else you wanted to bring up before we move into the minutia? No, I think that's, uh, that's everything I got. Okay, well... Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Yes. So, Corey, sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you feel were most noteworthy? Well, we already mentioned him, but on uh, page 23, the suit that the fair-headed man is wearing is... Very 70s. It is. I would say almost 60s. Uh, I could see that being a Perry Mason suit. Not that Perry would wear, but that Paul would. Oh, sure. Wait, the show is black and white, no? 
Uh, the very late seasons of it were color. I think there was one color season, which I generally don't watch. Um, oh, no kidding. But you would totally imagine how some of his suits being that color. And they definitely have like the uh, the plaid checkedness to them. But yeah, no, that guy had a pretty tight suit on. He's, uh, you know, your standard like football looking type dude, but with a pointy beard and an orange checked suit with broad shoulder pads in it. Yeah, I, I like this guy because he's is drawn like hyper masculine, but he's also hanging out outside of a, a modern easy method dance studio. I like that about him, too. And his I, I'm assuming dance partner is also dressed very distinctively. She's dressed kind of like she's I don't know. It's a very frilly dress. It's a lot more old timey than his outfit. Yeah, it reminded me in in some ways of those, what are those called? Uh, poodle skirt from the the 50s? A little, like a cross between that and like a Petticoat Junction era outfit. Yeah, kind of a Victorian poodle skirt. Oh no, do you think maybe she's a ghost? Oh man. I mean, if there's one thing we learned from the last episode, and to be fair, there probably isn't, but if there is one thing we learned from that episode, it's that old-timey dress definitely equals ghost. I also don't know if you noticed, but in the background of that panel, there are three other people, one of whom is wearing a sweatshirt that just has a big Z on it. Mm-hmm. I felt like that must have been a reference to something, but damned if I know what. Do you think that's supposed to be Zonker Harris? Did he have a shirt like that? Who is Zonker Harris? From Doonesbury? Oh, Zonker. How could I forget Zonker Harris from Doonesbury? I have no idea. I drew uh, a poster of him when I was in, in grade school. With him holding a cup of coffee that had the caption, it's going to be a long week, that my dad (laughs) brought uh, to his office and put on the wall. (laughs) I love that you were drawing anti-motivational posters for your dad when you were in grade school. Yeah. (laughs) I just liked his name. It's a fun name. And that guy doesn't look like him, but Hagar the Horrible shows up. So maybe Zonker Harris is hanging out there. Could be. In terms of other fashion, this is kind of old business, but I don't think we gave it quite enough time last week because how could we? Oleris's costume, the very street sharky costume, the tail of that thing starts in the front. It is a confusing and powerful <laughs> appendage. It is like when they were designing the suit, he was like, no, I want more codpiece. More more and let until they were left with no choice but to just fold it around and turn it into a powerful serpentine tail but it definitely starts in the front which is a weird choice that's a weird look and he still definitely has the whole street shark thing going although i don't know if he's supposed to be getting more powerful but he is drawn without pupils in a couple of these panels and it really i don't know kind of conveys the impression that his plan to get more powerful is working Oh, yeah, it definitely makes him look more uh, bad guy. Yeah, a little, little more cosmic, too. Mm-hmm. You know, his tail starts in the front and in the back. Oh, man. So. Party in the front, party in the back. <laughs> <laughs> or or business on both sides. Oh, man. This guy owns a party business, and it's coming at him from both ends. Oh, man. We should make him the general manager at Sinanigans. Oh, I mean, if we hire him and he's not the general manager, there's going to be all kinds of strife as he tries to take over as general manager. Right. Just start him at the top. Yeah. Although I'm giving him a more competent assistant manager than Popo. I don't know. I feel like 
assistant manager, Popo could do Corey, okay. you are not in charge of hirings. <laughs> <laughs> well, we already know he can do a good self-assessment, so... <laughs> Corey, we're not hiring a prospective employee who lists themselves as their only reference. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> Popo doesn't have to be assistant manager. Well, I don't think he gets to work at Sananigans at all. Oh, no. He could, like, go table to table doing illusions or something. All right. People, people might like that. We'll bring him on, but only as an independent contractor. I think that guy's an HR liability. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> oh, we just had our first business disagreement. <laughs> That went pretty well. I think so, too. <laughs> Any other fashion you wanted to talk about? The knuckleheads guarding the jail cell had some kind of weird bondage looking headgear. Yeah, incompetent bumbling guards are one of my favorite subgenres of minor comic book characters, and uh, I feel like these guys did a good job bumbling. Oh, they sure did, yeah. They fell right into Val's uh, trap. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, I like that they're bitching about their boss, too. Yeah, they really bumbled hard, though. Like, she didn't even have to goad them into trying to poke her with a spear through the door. <laughs> she just knocked on the door. Bam, bam, bam. And they're like, Ooh. Oh, I hate it when people knock on the door. I'll prod some sense into her with my spear. Yeah. Uh. I think that may be a byproduct of living in Valhalla for as long as they have, where stabbing people and cutting off their limbs and shit doesn't have any lasting effect. You just start doing it more. Oh, yeah, I'm sure that's the case. Yeah, I think it becomes like the A option instead of like the Z option when you're hanging out in that forever meat hall forever. Mm-hmm. It's like I, I hit my brother in the back with this mace because I thought it would be funny. <laughs> Stuff like that probably happens there. Do you think it was funny? <laughs> it's, well, it's probably fine if everybody's okay at the end. Behold! Or be gone. In this issue, we saw that Popo and Cassiolina and Olorus are just zooming around all of Valhalla in their giant mountainous RV. How do you feel about moving into a giant mountainous mobile home that can go all over Yggdrasil and any of the Nine Realms? Do you move into a, a mountainous mobile home if you can do that? Um, does it wreak destruction whenever I move it from point A to point B? I'm not sure if it wreaks destruction. Uh, I do think that parking is going to be a pretty significant issue because it is a mountain. Oh, I do hate parking. But I mean, like, presumably there are parts of the Nine Realms where you could go where that would be less of an issue. Well, based on what I've seen from this little corner in Niflheim where I am presently, I'd say that would be pretty great. If I can if I can do it without causing earthquakes and stu- such by traveling around, I think I could probably find a decent place to park my uh, Shark Mountain RV. Yeah, I'm going to say it's a, it's a behold. I can see that. I think for me it would be a little bit more of a pain in the ass than I would anticipate. So I'm actually going to give it a be gone. Just, I, I think about that with regular RVs and Winnebago type situations where... It sounds so appealing to me, but then I think about, well, you could really only go to remote places. There's, or very specifically designated parking areas. And I think with a mountain, that issue is going to be even more exacerbated. And it's a mountain, so once you get someplace, you have to park it far away enough from where everything's going that it's going to be a pain to get anywhere from there. Well... You could do like how they do with RVs sometimes, where you tow another 
tiny sized vehicle behind it. Oh, do you think maybe just like a smaller mountain? Or, you know, whatever. that You can just tool around town and easily park. It's like a, I don't know, a little pile of rocks. Or... <laughs> just a big boulder. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I like that. I think that sounds a lot better. I'm still giving it a mild be gone, but, but I like where your head's at on this. So that's one be gone. And one behold. All right. Corey, what kind of... Oh, go sorry, ahead. I'm still I'm still excited about my new mountain RV. This is, <laughs> where am I going to take this thing? This is cool. Yeah, I mean, you could be like a, a regular Ratatosk, uh, just uh, scampering up and down the tree of the universe. Did you just call me that asshole squirrel? Well, I'm just saying, if you're traveling between the nine realms in a giant conveyance, I, I mean... Hey, you didn't say anything about a squirrel requirement. You don't have to be a squirrel. I'm just saying it is a squirrel-like activity. Driving an RV is a squirrel-like activity? In so many ways. <laughs> oh, man. There's so much I have to learn about <laughs> the way the world works. Look, Norse mythology is very complicated. I'll say... <laughs> What was your pie not made out of steel? Ah, yeah. So we, we touched on this earlier, but I liked Hiroken's kind of thought bubble speech to himself. I think it was on page seven, where he's um, kind of touching his forehead and ruminating on the battle that he just lost. And I like the way that he's basically rationalizing to himself, because I suppose I found myself doing this from time to time, about why things didn't go the, the way that you wanted them to, but... His wording was, was pretty good. So he says, My heart is sickened. Never hath Haroken known such abject failure. But mine arm was true and my steel was sharp. Tis plain that Olerus the unmerciful did prevail by sorcery alone. Hmm. So he's just basically saying, Hey, I did actually a pretty good job, but the other guys cheated. Uh, I think he's been dipping into the Papo self-evaluation bin there. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I like the way he, he worded it. Yeah, no, it was very eloquently phrased. My pie not made out of steel was definitely this exchange, which we have already discussed a bit. But, you know, Captain, the Pentagon's been trying to capture the Hulk for years, and I'm still not sure why. Simple, Sergeant. They have to. It's in the budget. Yep. I love that so much. That is by far the highlight of this issue for me. Yeah, that got a good uh, chuckle from me as as well. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Sorry, I don't know if... Is it too late to go back to sartorially speaking? When I was looking for that dialogue, I just ran into something that's pretty crazy. Well, it's highly unorthodox, but I'll allow it. Look at the panel on the top left of page 11, Hagar's outfit. I didn't realize he was wearing a silver singlet or a doublet. What's mm -hmm. it called when it's got two straps? I feel like a doublet's a different thing. It's wearing like a Russellman's uh, leotard, but it looks like it's got googly eyes where his nipples would be. <laughs> yeah, I think he's wearing a, a novelty unitard that has googly eyes over his nipples. And probably it's he's a little bit far too far back for us to read this, but I think he, it is written uh, on the tummy of that shirt with an arrow pointing up. My eyes are up here. <laughs> Oh, Hagar. Oh, Hagar. <laughs> He's horrible. What was your favorite sound effect? This was a sound effect rich issue for sure. We already talked about Olerus's strong tail. Indeed we did. 
I was amused by the noise that it made on page 15 when he wraps up Val and tosses her into a wall, and that makes the sound wonk. <laughs> that was pretty good. From that same battle, I liked how ineffectual Popo's, I guess, force beams or whatever he was shooting out of his hands were. I mm-hmm. thought it was very telling that they made a much smaller sound effect than anyone else's and that they made the noise fuzzed. Yep, they sounded pretty impotent. Yeah. So I I enjoyed that. I thought that was a nice touch. But my favorite definitely was on page 30. Oh, I think I have the same one. (laughs) Splut? Yep, the (laughs) gory sound of a sword. Manifesting itself into a devil pterodactyl skull. Yep, right through the eyeball, I think, too. It's a pretty gross sound. It definitely is. I liked how that was phrased because Valkyrie's wishing she had a sword. She says, if only I had my sword Dragonfang, or any sword. Then, as though the thought of a sword somehow birthed the reality, one appears, skewering the beast. And that sounds so passive. But yeah, the visual of it is this pterodactyl getting stabbed through the eyeball with a flying sword that Haroken just threw, and it is Mm -hmm. awesome. It is, and the thing looks super dead. Like, its mouth is open very wide, his tongue is sticking out, he drops Valkyrie. Like, it's all just a super bad time for that creature. Yeah, they are just hating that. Any other sound effects? That was my favorite. I did have one other backup, which was it was kind of a cute sound that the little rocket launcher that the army men used to try and shoot the Hulk. Their rockets make the noise, whoosh! <laughs> P-W-O-O-S-H. Yeah, I like the whole subgenre of sound effects that let you know that they are not going to be effective. hmm Yeah. Now, Corey, every issue of a Defenders comic book has one character who has to act counter to their previously established characterization or motivation in a way that furthers the plot. To paraphrase the Fat Boys from Crush Groove, they just gotta be a sucker. In this issue, who was your sucker? Yeah, this one, um, I, I went with Hellcat, so... It's definitely not out of character for her to pilot an automobile in a risky manner, but she's been pretty successful at doing so in the past. Mm-hmm. Granted, this one's a little tough because I guess we could argue that, you know, she was ensorcelled when she crashed, so maybe it wasn't really her fault. Yeah, I was reading that that they had been killed by the time of the impact of the of the crash already, just because that's the only way I can make a jibe with the way that the rest of the deaths seem to be working, you know? Oh, so when they're having the conversation in the car about her being in the wrong lane, that they're in the wrong lane because they had already been, like, zapped to death? Yeah, that she is losing control of the vehicle because they are not in control of their bodies at that point because they're dead. Yeah, I, I figured there was some sorcery in there at some point, but it was still pretty weird for me to see her crashing a car and i couldn't come up with a better example yeah she's got those cat-like reflexes exactly so for my sucker i decided to go with hagar the horrible what (laughs) he's normally a much less competent viking than that he's not eating a giant turkey leg he's not uh bitching about his wife helga He's just acting in a way that you never see Hagar the Horrible act. And so, uh, yeah, I had him as my sucker. Fair enough. I mean, he he does bring the levity with his uh, googly-eyed onesie, but... But, I mean, that's a little bit more blue than we're used to seeing Hagar the Horrible work, though. I suppose so. Okay. That's a, that's a fair vote for a sucker. 
Yeah, sorry. That, that, it, it's a stretch, but if Hagar's on the table, I, I mean, I, I got to take him. I was very close to picking him as my best defender, but I couldn't quite justify that one because he didn't do that much. He's technically not a defender either, right? Well, I mean, he's fighting in the same army as Valkyrie. That is a slippery slope. I'm just saying. Anybody that appears in a Defenders comic book. That is aiding one of the Defenders because it's a non-team. That's always been the rule. Mm. If he had done a few more things in the issue, then I think he would have been a viable choice. I don't think he qualifies. Okay. Well, let's talk about some people who do qualify. Who did you have as your best defender, and who do you have as your worst offender? For best, I went with Val. I liked the way, the, the real Val, I liked the way that she fooled the bumbling guards into giving her the spear and, and broke out of jail, and then uh, stabbed one of the bird dragon pterodactyl things in the mouth uh, with the spear. That was all good heroing. I agree. I think she did a very good job. Nice busting out of there. I had Hiroken as a possible backup because I think he did a pretty good job too. But yeah, not a ton to choose from in terms of of best defenders. Most of the defenders appearing in this just kind of showed up and then died. Yep. Conversely, who did you have as your worst offender? I had Barbara Norris. Ooh, I thought she did a pretty good job. She did a good job, but she did it in the the service of evil. And also she did a pretty good, like, um, messing with Kyle. Like, hey, we wouldn't normally let you into Valhalla, but I bent the rules. Yeah, I I feel like that's all to her credit rather than, I I don't know, Corey. I think she did a pretty good job. I took a little liberty with it because we can also look at best and worst as, you know, accomplishing the goals of the defenders like she was being the best at being the worst yeah best uh villain okay every because like everybody else dies that's true but i think in his manner of death and his reaction to his death kyle stood out as doing the worst job and there is one very specific thing that this comes down to for me while they were driving in what i still continue to think of as the hellcat mobile despite the fact that Kyle technically owns it and paid $25,000 for it, as he won't shut up about, he is wearing his civilian clothes. As soon as he dies, he is wearing his Nighthawk outfit. And he doesn't notice. Because that's how bad at having a secret identity he is. Wow. He can't tell the fucking difference whether he is dressed as a superhero or not. That's a good point. Why is he wearing civilian duds in the car and Hellcats in her costume? And then, yeah, he didn't even think about um, heroing up before they left to go rescue Val. Well, I don't think they were leaving to go rescue Val. I think they were driving around to soothe Hellcats' nerves because she liked going for drives. Oh, that's true. They were riled up because they were worried about Val. Yeah, I mean, in the car, it's more confusing that Patsy is wearing her costume, as she has been for the last couple of issues, for no reason. Like, she was sleeping in it, she was uh, wandering around her apartment in it, and and now we see that she is going for a joyride with a civilian-dressed Kyle in her Hellcat costume as well. So it makes sense that Kyle would be in his civilian duds, although I do think it would be funny if he was dressed as Nighthawk and driving around in a car that had a personalized license plate that says Kyle. (laughs) I still think that's pretty in character. But yeah, the fact that he is so incredulous as to 
accepting the fact that he died. I get that. That's got to be a kind of jarring experience. But once he is dead, yeah, he doesn't even notice that he's dressed as a superhero. And yeah, I think that's just indicative to how bad at maintaining a secret identity he is. Fair enough. What was your favorite panel? Again, there was a a fair amount to choose from in here. I think I'm going to go with a smaller one on page 14, which I called Val Wakes Up or Val is Awake. And it's the one kind of in the middle of the page where uh, Olaris is is kind of being a creep and like cradling her her face Mm -hmm. and, you know, talking about like, hey, that's a shame we got to keep you alive, but wake up, blah, blah, blah. And it's it's kind of zooms in on her face being cradled by his hands, and she has this look of like total like disdain and anger on her face. And she says, "The Valkyrie is awake, villain." You know, shortly before she smashes him out the door, real good. But uh, I like that panel. It it captures her kind of fierce warrior spirit. I feel like. Yeah, I think that I think that's a really good choice. One of my choices was one that we already discussed with the uh, devil pterodactyl getting run through with a sword. But I think I prefer the one where manly Viking man gets murdered by the death ray and specifically the street shark insert on the uh, death dance panel. The superimposed head of Olerus watching what's happening on Midgard as he's claiming the death and that Mm -hmm. his face is splitting the nicely dressed Viking man dying in front of the dance studio with a panel that is all white noise, I I think is really, it's cleverly done and well executed. And I really enjoyed that. Yeah. And they kind of found a way to make um, Olerus actually look a little creepier and not just a hundred percent goofy. Taking away the pupils of his eyeball seems to do that. It's still a really goofy headgear, but... Goofy, but menacing. I I mean, don't get me wrong. The street sharks are really weird and dumb looking, but I would be absolutely terrified to encounter one. Oh, sure. You're only human. Yeah. And I mean, they are totally jawsome. Now, Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? So as we found the Hulk enjoying a beautiful Crater Lake National Forest and our beloved home state of Oregon. We are going to look to the east for Hulk's philosophy in, in this one. He's encouraging everybody to practice. A literal translation would be forest bathing. Ooh. So a Japanese word is uh, shinrin-yoku, and those are the words forest and, and bath. And essentially it means take some time and get out in nature and, uh, and hang out without the distractions of, of the world around us. And, you know, considering that in a few short years, by 2050, 66% of the world's population is projected to being living in cities. And average American spends 93% of their time indoors. With things like this going on, I, I think getting out into the woods or, you know, just out of the city, taking some time, hopefully the army's not chasing you around. Is, is really important for our, our well-being, and there's a lot of health benefits to it. So that's what the Hulk is saying. Take some time, do some uh, forest bathing. Now, do you think that would be considered a substitute for more conventional bathing? No. <laughs> mm. No, I don't. <laughs> Agree to disagree. Well, that was one rule that the Hulk wants us to learn from this issue. But I think another is 
don't make a decision based only on one piece of evidence. And he learned that from watching what happened to his pals, Patsy and Nighthawk. Because Patsy was driving a car that had the steering column on the right-hand side, she went ahead and assumed that she was in England and should drive in the wrong lane. And because of that, they got flattened by a truck. Now, Hulk was watching this from afar. He didn't know about the laser death cannon from Asgard that was zapping them as this was happening. So to his mind, it was just uh, her just taking one tiny piece of evidence, not looking at the rest of the context, and basing a decision on that. And you saw how it panned out. So don't make a decision based on only one piece of evidence. Sage advice from our, our green friend. Man, when I was a kid, I always wanted to have a car that had the steering column on the right-hand side. Because when I was a little kid, my dad used to let me shift. And so I learned to shift with my uh, left hand. And so I thought it would be cool to to be able to do that when I grew up. But I didn't. That sounds horribly confusing. Yeah, I think it it would definitely uh, freak me out a little bit now. It would take some getting used to. But eh, I'd still kind of like to try. I wanted a car. You remember those mask toys? Okay, yeah, that would be fun, too. <laughs> it's like a Trans Am with gullwing doors that shot missiles. <laughs> yeah, it was like Transformers if instead of the car turning into a robot, the car turned into a car that had a lot of guns. Yeah. Deception is the ultimate weapon. Oh, there there we go. Yeah, that's the car I wanted when I was a kid. This is a mobile armored strike command. Was that what it stood for? Holy mackerel. I don't know, but uh, let's take it. Okay. I mean, I feel like they had to misspell whatever the K word was, but I might be wrong about that. Mm. Yeah, I know. That sounds a little too, like, Russian for that part of the Cold War where those came out. But Yeah, you got to make the acronym work however you can. Before we get into our, our final segment where we write some Wongs, I did want to mention, I talked at the very beginning of the show about how David Kraft worked on the Beatles comic book. And that was in part what led to him leaving the Defenders. The last comic book that he worked on for Marvel before he left it this time, he did end up coming back later, was another Beatles comic book that was supposed to come out in the same line, but it never got published. But it was an adaptation of the film for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Have you ever seen that movie? Uh, No, not in its entirety. I have not. It's the one where the Bee Gees play the Beatles. Yeah, I saw like clips of it as part of music classes in elementary school. Ah, man, you went to a pretty swinging elementary school. Ah, uh, I wouldn't describe it exactly <laughs> that way, but I, the music teacher was cool. That is cool. Yeah, no, I've never seen that movie. I, I would very much like to, but the comic book sounds like it was a disaster to work on. I guess they kept trying to get more notes on the script and... The script kept changing as they were trying to write the adaptation of it, and the studio was not great about working with them on it. And they kept just telling them how, oh, no, no, it's going to be great. We're going to have a ton of just celebrity guest stars come in at the end of the movie. And then they couldn't get those uh, guest stars. And then also uh, George Perez was the artist on it, and he talked about how, and it kind of didn't matter if they could because we couldn't get the licensing rights to all of those characters. And just, yeah, what a nightmare project it was to work on. Um, Sounds like it. Still, I would love to see that comic book, and I would love to see that movie at some point. All right. Well, sounds like we got a movie night candidate. Oh, yeah. It's got to be better than a talking pony. (laughs) 
man, that is the film to beat. <laughs> we have set the bar so low with our film watching that we have essentially buried the bar several feet under the earth. Yeah. Ugh. Nowhere to go but up. That's a great way to look at it. Mm-hmm. So with that positive attitude in mind, let's write some Wongs. In the year of our Lord, 1979, and the month of our Lord, January, what Wongs needed writing? So, as we know, Wong does have a friendly relationship with with Jimmy Carter at this time. So this particular instance is kind of in the, to give it some historical context, sort of in the the middle of what I want to talk about. But in 79 January, Carter had basically gotten behind members of Congress that, you know, for 11 years or so had been working to try and get Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday recognized as as a holiday post his 1968 assassination. And that was in part due to Wong's influence getting behind the president and saying, hey, can we help push this through to, to get this recognized as national holiday? Ultimately, of course, not successful until many years later when the bill was finally passed in the Senate, despite Jesse Helms' filibuster and all the drama surrounding that. So later, when it was passed, uh, 1983, it was November, and then the first holiday was celebrated in 1986. But looking back, we, we do have all the hard work of everybody involved in making that happen. And the tiny part that uh, Wong and uh, President Carter were part of also is uh, part of what he was up to in 1979, January. Very nice. So what piece of that happened in 1979? Carter came out as saying that he was in favor of it? Yeah, basically. So the first iteration of the bill was put forward by Democratic um, Congressman John Conyers, just like four days after King's assassination in um, 1968. Mm -hmm. And it made it through the House of the Representatives, but the bill needed two-thirds majority to pass, which it, it didn't make. And then there was a ton of lobbying from uh, the nonprofit, the King Center, and uh, they also got Stevie Wonder involved. And then there was the March on Washington um, that had a half a million people there with Coretta Scott King. Stevie Wonder also came, and they had a petition signed by six million people uh, that got they presented that to the Speaker of the House at the time. That was Tip O'Neill, and the House took up that bill in 1983 when it finally passed with 53 votes. But then the, the, things got contentious with uh, Jesse Helms was in the, the Senate. So the, the, yeah, the fight to get through the Senate was there, uh, a big part of it. But yeah, having it be such a, a recent thing, I, it was a nice little dovetailing into what Wong was up to back in the day. Excellent. Well, that was one thing that Wong was up to. Uh, other than that, January of 79, Wong was trying to relax He had had a pretty contentious phone call that he had just had to deal with. So he decided he wanted to relax. And in January of 1979, he was chilling out and watching Life on Earth, the nature documentary uh, by David Attenborough. And it was very helpful to him. Now, the reason he needed to relax a little bit, well... To learn that, we got to go all the way back to October of 1973. You see, Wong was in a bit of a tizzy at that time because uh, one of his personal heroes and a man he had developed a bit of a friendship with, Walt Kelly, the artist and creator of Pogo, uh, had died recently. And he had made a special request that Wong scatter his ashes along the west coast of the United States. So Wong 
went out to California, had to get there, borrowed a friend of his in New York named Paul Jenkins. He borrowed his car and and drove out there and then drove up along the West Coast, scattering uh, Walt Kelly's ashes as he did so, uh, until he ended up in the town of Florence, Oregon, known for its lovely dunes. Uh, I believe I've done some camping there. Have you as well? I've been. I remember they're famous for their blue schist. That's a kind of rock. It sounds like a dirty kind of rock, but it's not. It's nice. <laughs> it's just a regular rock. Yeah. Igneous, I think, or sedimentary. I can't remember. Who can say for certain in these tumultuous times of geothermic whatnot? Anyway, Wong got there and he was starting to relax and he was having an okay time. And then all of a sudden, this is in October of 1973, the Avengers Defenders War starts really kicking into high gear. And without consulting him beforehand, Steve teleported Wong back to New York and pressed him into service in the uh, in the Defender's Aid. Ah, oh, Steve. And he just completely lost track of what was happening. But Paul Jenkins' car is still in Florence, Oregon. So Paul started walking out to get it. And <laughs> Paul was a travel writer. He ended up spending six years walking to Florence, Oregon, <laughs> documenting yeah. his adventures as he did so. And then finally ended up finding where Wong had left his car. And then he called Wong and really let him have it about it. Oh, I bet. And understandably so. The battery was probably dead. Paint's probably messed up from the sea air. Yeah, and uh, the ashtray was pretty full, but not with cigarette ashes. With uh, part of Walt Kelly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, And yeah, so uh, Paul Jenkins wasn't too happy about that. But eventually he ended up really making a name for himself by writing that travel book. So things, they they worked out. They get along okay now. But man, Wong really felt like a real horse's patoot about that one. Although, you know, understandable you get distracted when you get teleported across the country and told that your best friends are fighting the Avengers. So sure. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's what Wong was up to in January of 1979. Busy month. Indeed. Well, thank you for joining us from that lovely corner of Niflheim you find yourself in. Uh, Maybe I'll try to make it down there and visit you. Yeah, I think I left an enchanted flagon in your comic book room somewhere, so... Nice. I hope Odin banishes me. (laughs) One can hope. Well, thanks for joining us, Corey, and uh, thank you for joining us, listeners. I hope we're able to work out any uh, technical kinks we have with the uh, remote recording. Thanks for bearing with us if we have any issues with that. If you'd like to get into touch with us, you can do so in a variety of ways. We have a P.O. Box that's Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. You can also, as this is the future, reach us electronically at, what's our email address? ttwasteland at gmail.com. Thanks, Corey. I legitimately forgot that. I'm happy I remembered. I hope I got it right. I think you did. You can also leave us a review on whatever it is that you're listening to this show on. Just open up that app and... uh, Type in some nice words about us. A recent review that we received, which I particularly appreciated, said, this is the worst football podcast ever. Five stars. (laughs) Nice. We have definitely picked up some new followers on Twitter, which is another way you can get into touch with us, who, judging from our name, think that we are concerned with a certain Tennessee football team who did 
okay in the playoffs this year. Man, they're going to be disappointed. No, I would imagine so. You can also get into touch with us on uh, Facebook, Tumblr, LinkedIn, uh, Usenet, groups.org. I don't really know what any of those words mean together like that, if anything. (laughs) It's a big internet, and we're part of it. So... Drop us a line or something. If you would like to support us monetarily, you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material, including the monthly podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa, about Howard the Duck. That is called What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. Uh, that's a show where we talk about Howard the Duck comics from the 70s. But there's a ton of other stuff on the Patreon page. I've been making video reviews of classic comic books. Right now I'm doing a series where I talk about the influence of nostalgia on Roy Thomas's work. And that's been a lot of fun. And if you donate, then you get access to all that stuff. But mostly it's a nice way for you to let us know that you like what we're doing and would like us to keep doing it. Anyway, thanks so much for joining us. And, uh... Yeah, I hope that you don't fall through a portal, or if you do, that you end up someplace nice. Like the weird nice part of Niflheim that Corey ended up in, and not the shitty neighborhood in Muspelheim that is bad. That's not a thing. Hmm. (laughs) Seemed like I was going somewhere with that, didn't it? It really did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I thought you had something. No, no, but then it became clear that I didn't. Um, anyway, thanks for joining us. And Harokin! Bye. Oh, man, you're not going to say something goofy? Now I look like a real turd. Thanks a lot, Corey. Oh, that's probably not true. <laughs> Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you want to... You okay? Yeah, I'm fine. There is a slight malfunction. Okay. (laughs) User error.